Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before I introduce today's program, I'd first like to thank a few of our fellow saloners who either made a donation to the salon or who bought a copy of my novel, the pay-what-you-can audiobook, The Genesis Generation. And those fine people are Sean B., Rob P., Michael E., Karen L., Stuart P., Robin B., and Andy H. And... Hey, I really want to thank you all so much for your continuing support. I know a lot of you have been uh, with us for a long time here, and it really means a lot to me. Now, uh, for today's program, as promised, we are about to listen to an interview that Dennis McKenna gave to David Ellenbogen, and uh, in which David played uh, last night, no, no, it was the night before, on WKCR 89.9 FM radio in New York City. And uh, David very kindly has allowed me to replay that interview for you here in the salon. And uh, by the way, after we hear this interview, I'll be telling you about a new podcast that David's also started. But first, let's uh, tune in as uh, he asks a few questions of one of our elders who is deeply rooted in both the academic world and the world of the shaman. In past podcasts with Dennis's brother Terrence, there have been uh, many occasions where we heard Terrence give Dennis the credit for coming up with some of the ideas that uh, Terrence went on to champion on the lecture circuit while Dennis worked in the laboratory. Now we are at long last getting the chance to hear some of these interesting thoughts directly from Dennis himself. So let's join them now. Good evening. You are tuned to WKCR 89.9 FM New York. This is Studio A. My name is David Ellenbogen. So glad to have you. It's going to be a really interesting show. And that is because we have Dennis McKenna as our guest. Dennis McKenna is an author and an ethnopharmacologist well-respected scientist who's dedicated his life to exploring plants and their potential. If you find his ideas compelling, and I expect that you will, Google Dennis McKenna Kickstarter and you will learn about his campaign to write a book about his experiences with his brother, Terrence McKenna one of the most uh, radical philosophers of our time. So yes, if you get three things out of this program, one would be that you have a chance to be a part of what will be an incredible book, and it's going to be called The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, written by Dennis McKenna about the wild adventures that he's had with his his brother, internal and external adventures. 
And number two would be to inspire you to research the ideas of Terence McKenna further. And number three would be that you might totally change the way you think about plants. So, yeah, we're going to dive in. This was pre-recorded at Dennis's friend's Alexandra's house a couple months ago before Dennis gave a talk about plants and creativity. So, let's dive in. And stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Well, maybe I'll start with a quote from Michael Pollan that exists in my iPhone. And basically, he he states that um, a lima bean, when attacked by a spider mite, can release a volatile chemical that summons the species of another mite Uh to attack that first mite. Uh Um, He mentions that, and he also mentions in the same quote that when they did research, when they did the Human Genome Project, they found that the human beings only had 25,000 genes. Yeah. While a grain of rice had thirty-five thousand, so I wondered what, what, what does this say to you, as a scientist? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the uh, part about uh, communication with the lima bean, uh, or that example, you know, is a good example of uh, what I'll be talking about tonight, which is basically that plants that chemistry is the language of plants in a certain sense and plants are able to make all of these this enormous biodiversity of what they call secondary compounds they're second they're not really secondary but they're compounds that are not universally distributed among all living things they're things that certain species or certain families make and they're obviously not required to maintain life because not everybody makes all of these things. But what they are is basically a system of chemical communication that the plants use. These are messenger molecules, and the plants substitute chemistry or biosynthesis, as you could call it, for behavior. That's how they interact. Animals interact with their world through behavior. You know, through the fight or flight or or fuck reaction, you know, we're always responding to stimuli from the environment in that way, and we respond through behavior, and we can move around and all that, and so this makes sense. Well, plants don't move around in the same way. Uh, they have ways to distribute their seeds and so on, but uh, they just kind of sit there. But it's not that they're not doing anything. They are chemical factories that are communicating and maintaining a balance in this chemical ecosystem with everything else in their environment, which includes other plants of the same species, 
other species of plants, fungi and, and microorganisms in the soil, uh, herbivores, which includes us, that might want to might want to nibble on these plants, and sometimes they want to be nibbled, or you know that helps their reproductive mm -hmm. cycles. Sometimes they want you to stay away, and so, so a lot of these things are toxins or repellents. Uh, others are signaling molecules, and others are more uh, symbiotic. You know, they help they help establish and maintain symbioses with other organisms, and that's what they do. That's how they communicate, and so uh, it gets interesting. I mean, it, it's interesting in itself, but it gets interesting when we're focus on the relationships between plants and higher organisms like us, organisms with complex nervous systems, because plants have these neurotransmitter-like molecules too, right? In fact, that's where they came from, ultimately. These things are signaling molecules that are uniquely suited to, to uh, communication and you know, in evolution, these molecules, these neurotransmitter-like molecules have become, uh, you know, they, they originally may have had a, an external communication type function, but then they have become internalized. And so the brain is essentially a communications network. It's, you know, all this complex network of neurons with you know, that uh, cross-talk to each other through these neurotransmitters. And it's, it, it's kind of interesting to me that uh, the neurotransmitters that are involved in the functions of consciousness, as far as we understand that, we know that uh, serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine are the so-called biogenic amines, and uh, these are the main neurotransmitters that function in the brain in the areas that we know regulate consciousness. And uh, these neurotransmitters uh, come from amino acids. Uh, they, they, they come from amino acids and they come from what, what they call essential amino acids. They're essential because we don't make them, right? We have to get them from our diet. Other things make them. We don't make those things, mm -hmm. so we have to get them from our diet. So, you know, these messenger molecules, essentially these plant molecules, are, you know, we are plants in a certain sense. We get from, from our diet these neurotransmitter precursors. Uh, that you know, then our body can convert into these neurotransmitters. So, you know, were it not for the plants on that level, there would be, you know, we wouldn't have these functions. Now, this business about the the genes and the apparent paucity, or you know, the puzzle: we're so complex. Why do we have fewer genes than a grain of rice? You know, I don't know if anybody really has the answer to that, but, you know, the paradigm that seems to be emerging, it used to be thought one gene, one enzyme, one gene, one protein. 
and that may be true, but a lot of what goes on, the the a lot of what's important in making these systems, our systems so complex is post-translational, after the protein has been made, then it's modified by various factors, you know, internal and external. It's cleaved in different ways. It, uh, you know, the proteins are made and come off the ribosome, and then they're usually modified in some ways. They may be methylated in certain places or chopped up into smaller fragments that then go off and and do their functions. So this whole realm of uh, this is not uh, genomics, this is proteomics. And uh, the one gene may make one protein, but that protein may make, may feed into multiple functions. And a single gene, it, it's not as simple a picture as it used to be. A single gene can make proteins that have multiple functions. And it's at that level that the complexity arises. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we have fewer uh, genes than a grain of rice, I mean, I don't know if it still explains that, but it seems like on the proteomic level, the degree of modification that goes on following the synthesis of these proteins is much more complex. It must be, because right. obviously... We think we're more more complex than a turnip, say, but right. maybe not so much. <laughs> maybe not as much as we thought, you know. So uh, I think that's I think that's kind of the current view, and you know, it's one of those. It's a model, like everything in science is a is a model. Um, and right now, that's the best explanation for it, but it's still. It's still remarkable, you know. I mean, it's not so much about genetics. It's more about epigenetics. And that's interesting because that opens the, the door to, you know, other evolutionary mechanisms. Uh, other, it's not simply the simple Darwinian picture of natural selection. Uh, becomes much more elaborated because it opens the door to environmental modification. You know, uh, for example, uh, there's a very interesting theory. Uh, there's a, a book called uh, "Left in the Dark," which is a theory about neural evolution uh, that uh, talks about the environment that early hominids evolved in was originally an arboreal environment in which their uh, diet was mainly fruits, very little meat, but mainly fruits and other plants. And, uh, and the net effect, the, the constituents in, in that kind of diet was very high in neurotransmitter precursors, neurotransmitter-like substances, uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, uh, essentially the chemistry that you find in pineal functions. And uh, his theory is that, uh, you know, this 
environment influenced by the essentially chemical ecology that these hominids were evolving in potentiated pineal functions and those folks had a much more integrated kind of uh, organization of their brains where in in our brains our left brain is dominant in most people and the right brain is the intuitive creative brain but it's usually the so-called inferior hemisphere. It's in, right. it's not, there's nothing inferior about it, but it's less accessible, right? And so most people, at least conditioned by Western civilization, are, you know, analytical and, uh, uh, you know, more the 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 uh, left brain functions are are more structured than the right brain functions, but the right brain is where the creativity is and uh, to a certain extent musical and mathematical abilities. You know, this is all left brain stuff. And his theory was that you know these hominids in this environment had access to this and that. It wasn't a genetic effect, it was an epigenetic effect because it modified the uterine environment of the female. So the fetus grows up in this environment that's essentially uh, modeled or in some sense uh, in influenced from the outside, from the dietary, the diet of the mother and the mothers are living in this environment. And so that has this epigenetic effect on the development of, of the fetus and the brain development of the fetus. As long as that environment continues, then it goes on from generation to generation. And you don't need thousands of generations for this to, this to manifest. You need a few generations. But then, so, this fellow's theory goes, the environment changed, the climate changed, these groups moved from the forest into the savanna, and their diet changed. They started eating a lot of grains, they started hunting animals and eating a lot more meat, they invented cooking, uh, they didn't consume so many of these fruits, and they had, you know, uh, the pineal potentiation was suppressed. And the uh, the steroids from their animal diet has the opposite effect. It suppresses uh, pineal potentiation. So gradually, the what what we think of as neural evolution, he's he's claiming is neural devolution, mm -hmm. in a sense that we lost this connection between the hemispheres gradually, and the hem and the and the right hemisphere came to be thought of as the, you know, the inferior hemisphere, but it wasn't inferior, but we lost access to it in a certain sense. And that changed our whole relationship. We lost access to a whole bunch of functions that, for example, maybe things like telepathy, you know, or just uh, uh, more intuitive integration with our with our environment and uh, and as this continued and, and it's only continued 
in in our time as our diet has gotten worse and worse you know now our diet the typical modern diet has almost no relationship to nature uh, you know it's all processed foods and all that so this is what you know since this connection was lost these uh, somewhat less desirable traits having to do with our uh, you know our left brain fixations have become dominant but the uh, you know the brain of modern humans is actually about a quarter about only about three quarters the size of uh, of uh, Neanderthals for example. So our brain is shrunk. Our brain is shrunk. Yeah. Now you have to take into account body mass and all that because talking about brain size without talking about body mass is is uh, you know it doesn't make any sense right because mm-hmm. an elephant's brain is a lot bigger than ours and so on but they are not particularly intelligent they're not intelligent enough to do what we do which is create culture and language and all that but that this relationship you know over time has has accelerated and we become more and more estranged from the kind of functions that the right brain it's not that it's not going on it's just it's more in the background and we're not always accessible to it so um, a lot of these spiritual practices psychedelics meditation various kinds of integrative things are techniques to try to re-establish this connection to try to you know re-establish this and uh, and potentially i mean the implications of his theory is that you could also over time, if you were to change the environment, you could reestablish this and and perhaps recover from this neurodegenerative disease that we have, which is known as civilization. Yeah, Western civilization, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, right. So this summarizes what, what this this last piece that you're saying, basically, our our. As our diet changed, we devolved from having a more integrated left-right hemisphere existence, and that led to a dominance of our left brain, which leads to male dominance, um, exactly. anal thinking. Exactly, um, exactly, all and, of those things. And a war culture. And a and more or less suppression of the right brain mm-hmm. by the left brain. I mean, the left brain kind of took over the executive functions and the right brain being the right brain wasn't particularly interested in that anyway. So, okay, you know, you guys go run things and I'll just be here as the source of you know, all creativity and insight and all that. I I don't know if it's uh, if it's uh, true. (laughs) True. I mean, it's a reasonable theory. Um, and it explains a few things. One of the things about evolution, evolutionary theory or evolutionary biology um, that's always puzzled me, and this is kind of my main rap for tonight's talk and my main rap in general is that because of this plant communication system that works throughout the ecosystem, uh, and it works on everything in it that interacts with plants, uh, it just makes sense that secondary products which work 
often at the genomic level and various levels, uh, had an influence on evolution, you know, in terms of the way that we adapted to this chemical environment. Some of the adaptations were behavioral and some of them were genetic, right? Like, for example, behavioral adaptations have to do with things like, well, purging, for example, or methods of uh, cooking or methods of detoxifying plants to make them edible. You know, these are all simple folk technologies, but they enable the hominids to uh, have a, a wider diet to be essentially omnivores because we've evolved those adaptations. But then over on the genomic side, there's also biochemical adaptations that are going on. There's, uh, you know, the liver is essentially the body's uh, toxin filter in some ways. It's loaded with enzyme systems that have evolved over time to deal with these chemicals that come in from the environment, what we think of as drugs, you know, which may be synthetic, but also natural natural chemicals uh, and uh, everybody is a biochemical individual right and we know this now there's a whole area of pharmacology that's a hot new area called, called pharmacogenetics everybody metabolizes drugs and toxins in a slightly different way and that de that depends on the complement of enzymes that they have whether monoamine oxidases or there's a, another big set of enzymes called the mixed function oxidases, the so-called cytochrome P450 uh, complex of enzymes, and these are inducible. They're, they, you have the genetic uh, blueprint to make them, but they're not made until you get exposed to a particular complex of toxins or a particular a particular toxin in the environment, and then these things are induced by that environmental stimulus. It goes back to gene expression. The trivial and obvious example is an alcoholic or a person who drinks a lot of alcohol has much higher levels of uh, alcohol dehydrogenase, which is the enzyme, the primary enzyme in the pathway that breaks down alcohol eventually into, you know, CO2 and water. But it it inactivates the alcohol. A person who drinks a lot of alcohol develops tolerance because mm -hmm. they have these, they're much less sensitive to it. Whereas you or me, if we don't drink a lot of alcohol, you know, that's why people can be, you know, somebody can drink you under the table, right? Even right. though they're not, you're not consuming more than they are, they're consuming mm -hmm. a lot more, but they're adapted to it. And for just about every class of toxins, there's a family of enzymes that is inducible, and those come online when you're exposed to the toxins. But a person living in the Amazon, say, that chemical environment is going to have a particular enzyme profile. If you isolated those enzymes and did HPLC or whatever, you'd see they have a unique profile that is a function of or a consequence of the environment that they're living in. So you get the individual variations, but you also get the group variations. 
So a person in the Amazon is going to have quite a different profile based on their, you know, their chemical environment than a person in Siberia or a person in L.A., you know, and they'll have a unique signature as well. So I think that, uh, you know, this is just a function of the fact that, you know, we think of ourselves as separate from the environment. You know, we're kind of here and our skin separates us from the environment, but we're not like that at all. We're, we're semi-permeable membranes, you know. Things are coming in all the time in the form of food, drugs, smoke, other things that we absorb, and we're putting out things all the time at the same time. So we're part of this chemical communication system, you know, even though we experience it as being, you know, this all happens at a fairly subtle level and we're not necessarily aware of it, you know, until you make some mistake, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then it's brought home, you know, until you eat too many mushrooms or some poisonous plant and all that, and all, all of a sudden, no, you know, didn't have the enzymatic machinery to take care of that one, so right. and now we get to die. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or whatever. Right. <laughs> so us being these semi-permeable beings, and I guess I've, I've heard that a large percentage of our body weight is actually um, kind of... Uh, microorganisms and stuff like that and doing their own that functions. So, that so as too. you're describing, we're, we're basically this soup. Yes. But yes. there's also the part of us that is speaking to each other, which is something else, or is it? Is that semi-permeable as well? I mean... Well... Um, I guess we're talking about consciousness. We're talking about consciousness and... So that's like a whole other level of interaction, mostly between us as individuals. I mean, there are, there are chemical interactions as well, but, you know, we've sort of gone, because our brain has evolved to enable us to generate language, and language has all sorts of consequences that most animals don't really have to deal with. I mean, animals have primitive languages, but not languages that can carry signification, you know. I mean, that's, this is the main thing that they lack, is the ability to uh, attach significance to symbols. Like in, in, in primates, language is a path, in, in, in a way, if it weren't for the linkage to symbols or significance, which are abstractions, right, mm. uh, we wouldn't be conscious. I mean, that is the sine qua non of consciousness, is that we're immersed in this world of ideas and abstractions and dreams and, and you know, uh, this kind of experience is as real as the external world for us and not really separated from us. So, um, you know, that's, that's what sets us apart from animals. I don't think animals... I mean, you have to be careful to make these blanket statements, but, you know, uh, I don't think animals uh, are as modulated 
their behavior is not as modulated by symbols and things that are not external environmental cues, but internal, internal constellations of uh, ideas and emotions and, and so on. Um, so, now I know that, that prairie dogs can say such things as there's a guy coming and he's wearing a red shirt and he's tall and something like that. They've, they've discovered this pretty recently that they, they can... So what, uh, where is, is that symbolic speaking or, or, or is what we're doing now, what, what, what makes what we're doing now on, a, on another plane than that? Or is it not? I think what makes it different is that what we can do is not necessarily linked to immediate survival concerns. You know, I mean, a prairie dog sees mm-hmm. the hunter coming, and right. it's important to get that signal out, and and they do that, right. and that that goes on. That's what most animals. No, I think therefore I am. None of that. <laughs> None of dogs. that. None of this philosophical stuff or these internal things, uh, you know, that go on mm-hmm. that you then integrate into abstract abstractions and symbol structures which we're immersed in all the time. We can't get away from it. I mean, the only way we can get away from it is by, well, I'm not even sure we can. Certain meditative techniques where the object is to have no mind, to just obviate all that Mm -hmm. and just be, I mean, it's hard to get to that place, you know, because our brain is always chattering at us, it's always yammering, you know, and uh, the raw material of consciousness is kind of a mix of environmental cues and internal cues, and, you know, if you think about it, once I had a DMT experience where I got what I thought was uh, kind of an insight into this, where, you know, it was powerful DMT experiences they tend to be and and with experiences like that the interpretation always comes later you know when you're experiencing that you don't really have time to analyze it you're just oh wow you know but when you think about it and the thing that a model that makes a certain amount of sense to me is that consciousness the brain is a an organ that likes to organize information Right, that's what it does. It takes in information and it routes it to certain parts of the mm-hmm. brain, and there are internal processes that desperately try to have it make sense on some level to our cognitive apprehension. And so, you take something like a drug that disrupts these neural processes and completely, you know, kind of fries the wiring in a certain way, and yet. What, what you experience from that seems to make sense because even this kind of random neural noise is going to be structured in a way that, you know, uh, patterns emerge out of it that have mm-hmm. meaning or significance for us. So you can take something like DMT and that basically floods the whole serotonin system with this alien molecule, with this non-natural neurotransmitter completely disrupts the system and yet what we experience is patterns and ideas and you know geometric structures and all that that's what a lot of the brain does is help to 
you know, filter raw data of information. And, and that, was, that was the insight from the trip that, you know, it was like the DMT allows you to rip the curtain back on this for a few minutes or turn the circuit board over mm-hmm. and see what the thing is wired like. It's like you got all this information pouring into this big blender mm-hmm. and it's spinning around and all this information and it's, you know, it's it's something you read last week, it's a fragment of a song you heard 20 years ago, it's, a, you know, the first time you kissed a girl, it's, a, you know, something you read, something you heard, all of this stuff is spinning around and the function of the brain is to mash that all together and come up with a coherent story you know mm-hmm. which is sort of the story of your movie your personal movie that you're living in your own hallucination if you will your reality hallucination and uh, but the DMT lets you tear that filter function away you get to see the blender from the top normally it's separated mm-hmm. from you by these curtains that are you know the stuff is flowing through the blender and it's all being shunted into the right places and hopefully unless you're completely you know completely disrupted and we we equate that to pathology often um you know but but you get to see it from the you get to go behind the curtain and see the raw material of experience for a few minutes and how it's all coming together in this very chaotic way that then the brain the brain's ability to synthesize things takes over and what comes out it's like making pasta or something you know you put a big gamish of pasta in the top but these nice strings come mm-hmm. out the bottom and it's kind of like that I think If you're just tuning in, this is WKCR 89.9 FM New York. My name is David Ellenbogen, and we are playing an interview I recorded with Dennis McKenna a few months ago. He's an author and a scientist. And if you'd like to take part in his newest creation, he is right now raising funds on Kickstarter to... Tell the story of his adventures with his famous brother, Terence McKenna. All right, back to the interview. Now, um, to tie all this together, at, <laughs> at the beginning you, you kind of said that um, consciousness itself comes from plants because it's the essential things. And then you're later having experiences uh, through DMT, which is from a plant, mm-hmm. which is giving you a new angle on reality. And, and we also spoke of the spider mites that that think that they're doing what they want to do, but in fact are being controlled by a chemical right. from a plant, as, as is someone who's planting a rose thinks it's because they think it's beautiful, but maybe it's because the rose is, is also trying to survive. Yeah, exactly. And this is, this is the great insight that Michael Pollan has in this, you know, and you read some of his books, you've read The Omnivore's Dilemma, perhaps, yes, yes. and and that's the point that he makes, you know, we only think we're domesticating plants and growing plants, things like corn and that sort of thing. Actually, you can turn it around, corn is growing us, corn has turned us into its slaves, you know, it's it's the he talks about it as being the, the quintessential capitalist plant. 
you know, it's adopted us and it's forced us to change global agriculture. Right. You know, not in a good way a lot of times because, but as a dominant species, it's great for corn. Mm-hmm. You know, there's corn is more important in the Western diet, in the industrial food chain than probably any other thing. It's not simply that we eat it. We get thousands of products from it. We get biofuels from it. We get all these things, and we're totally addicted to and dependent on corn. Well, corn is like, hey, I got an easy ride here, you know? I'm not going extinct, (laughs) you know, because I have this protector. And, and they have four senators now from Iowa and Nebraska. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it's a very successful plan. Right. But uh, what I was like, kind of getting at as well was that is it possible that these insights that you had uh, in this DMT experiences were insights that a plant wanted to, you to have? <clears throat> well,. Yeah, it's 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 tricky. Yes, in some sense, in the sense that I think plants, it's to their advantage to establish these symbiotic relationships. You know, like corn, like it's to its advantage to have us value it and mm-hmm. grow it and use it. You know, does the plant want that? I mean, that attributes a different kind of intellect that attributes a a human-like intellect to the plant and I don't think it has that I don't think it exactly has that it looks it deals more on the evolutionary level you know uh, all organisms uh, to the degree that they can control their environment they want to optimize their environment for comfort for Mm -hmm. security for reproductive uh, reasons maximize their chances to transmit those genes into the future, uh, and by forming symbioses, I think that the you know the process of plant domestication is essentially a symbiosis. So, in the sense that the plant wants to be to have this evolutionary advantage, and here's this primate, you know that has the ability to domesticate it, to grow it, to take it out of nature. So it doesn't have to compete out there with all the other plants in the wild jungle that can grow in someone's garden. And its evolutionary, uh, you know, fitness in some ways has just gone up several notches because it can be, I mean, I'm not saying it thinks about these things, but if it did, it would say, hey, I'm in great shape until these knotheads destroy the planet completely. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm good, you know, I'm on easy street. And so I don't know that the plants want it as an individual, but it may be that as a community of species, I think as a community of species, what, what, the, uh, what the community of, of sentience shared among living things in the biosphere understands on some level is that the whole global ecosystem is in peril 
you know, and it's always been in peril. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's, I mean, we're facing ecological crises right now like we've never faced, but there were always ecological crises. And the, just the very fact that, you know, we're this rock tumbling through space that's covered with slime and we may be the only slime-covered rock in the whole, in the whole mess, you know. So it's inherently an unstable system. And life cleaves toward homeostasis. Life, you know, wants to cleave toward, toward stability. But not too much stability, because that's death. Right? Mm -hmm. But stability, it, it's homeostasis is a, 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 the way life perceives it. It's an energetic state that is some distance from, from thermodynamic entropy. Right. I mean, that's what life is. They're negentropic systems. They're high degrees. They're systems with a high degree of order. And in in the physical universe, in the universe at large, those systems usually don't last that long. And the whole there are so many influences trying to disrupt that order and essentially reduce it to chaos. And and life pushes back against that, you know, because they're not closed systems, right? They're these semi-permeable open systems where you take in nutrients and you transform them and you make the food part of your body and that you can run, the, you know, the machinery of the brain, the machinery of the body on that. Eventually you always lose because you die, right? And that's true of of species, of ecosystems, of planets, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a losing game so far as we know. But that's only if you define you as you, right? I mean, if, if you are just, uh, as, as your brother kind of put it, uh, there's, there's a quote that I found very stimulating where he said, you know, a language is code, body language is code, and... You know, and he went on to saying that everything is code, and, and what will reunite humans and machine is code. So, if everything is code, then the code will go on. I mean, I guess maybe with the extinguishment of the Earth. I mean, still, uh, um, uh, solar, sun, the sun will still be changing hydrogen into different states and stuff like that. So, well, these things will be going on, but code, the notion of code goes back to the notion of message and the notion of of significance there is, i mean is there a code if there's no mind to apprehend it you know uh, the notion of code requires a receiver an interpreter someone who is going to look at that information and and out of that draw meaning or significance if there's no apprehender then it's not code. It's just what goes on, you know. Mm -hmm. And what what makes life different is that, you know, it takes in these messages and they do have meaning. They do have significance. And so it's code in, in a certain sense. And we, but, uh, you know, the, the code is almost something that we put on that. Right. Well, in some cases it clearly is, but, you know, do these processes go on if there's no receiver of, of these mm -hmm. uh, molecular messages? Well, the, the other thing about your idea that, that life is kind of a losing game because it's, it always ends, I mean, that also, uh, 
assumes kind of a li- linear concept of time, right? Yeah. So if if that is not the case, then maybe something else is going on. If that's not the case, maybe something else is going on. And so far as we know, it's a losing game, you know, in that. But the it's kind of like, well, there's life, there's hope. As long as there are living systems, intelligent systems maintaining their, you know, this distance from, from entropy, there's always a chance that you'll figure out a way to game the system and escape, you know, into some other state of being where entropy does not rule. I mean, that, that's what I'm always, I'm kind of amused by the cosmologists, you know, who theorize about the ultimate death of the universe, because that's, you know, that's ultimately what we're death. talking, the heat death of the universe, and now the current model is that it doesn't collapse, it just expands forever, Freezes, and eventually yeah. all the stars burn out, and... You know, and eventually there's not enough energy to even right. keep atoms together, and it just all kinds Very of peters out. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So that's pretty depressing. Right. But the key thing that they leave out of these models, inevitably, is mind, is intelligence, right? I mean, if intelligence exists in the universe now, and we're furiously trying to understand how things are structured and how it all works, isn't it reasonable to assume that in a few trillion years, you know, if we persist, we're going to figure out how to get around this, you know? Mm-hmm. We're going to move the whole system to some other state of being. We've got a long time to work on it, and there's no particular hurry, right. you know? I mean, there's a hurry for our planet because, you know, we've been very stupid. We haven't been good stewards of the planet, but... You have to take some comfort, I think. I mean, it looks like we may not do it. You know, we intelligent monkeys are really very stupid monkeys, and we're, we're, we're fouling our own nest, really. And we may destroy the planet, but there are lots of planets out there, and there's lots of life, you know, and I think we're all part of this, this process of intelligence, you know, trying to come to terms with being, trying to wake up to itself in a certain sense. I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, and this gets back to, you know, what we've been talking about. Is consciousness primary? Is consciousness something that, you know, it's not something the brain generates. It's something that forms the, the, the ground of being. And what we have are these elaborate detection machines, you know, uh, consciousness is something you detect, like tuning a television set to different channels, as much as it is something the brain generates. I think the brain modulates signals that come from outside, but consciousness is probably more primal than, than matter. You know, In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now you'll have to explain that more deeply because I've I've heard people explain this, state this, but I never could really feel it on the visceral level that consciousness could be have primacy over matter. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, guess I don't even know where to start with that. I mean, well, the, is consciousness generated by matter? 
or is matter generated by consciousness? And, and, and I think that's what in the beginning was the word. That's the idea was that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I buy into this, right. but there's the idea of, you know, a primal uh, and, and primary intelligence that puts meaning, puts the word goes, the word went forth. In other words, the, mm -hmm. the act of signification, which is what words are, went forth in this primary way and by uttering what, what some philosophers have called the logos, you know, mm -hmm. pure meaning, it triggered the eruption of this material efflorescence that we call the Big Bang or that we call the origin of the universe. Now, you know, it begs the question, in a sense, okay, so there's a being out there that, that sent the word out and started the whole the whole thing going, started the clock ticking. No, it's not that it's separate. It's inherent in it. You know, it's it is it, it's not that God is out there and God made the universe. The universe is God. It's it's trying to come awake to itself. And, you know, it it exists, you know, in the in the current view of it is there's this quantum foam, you know, these, uh, what is the, what is the term, uh, uh, these uh, vacuum fluctuations, which you've heard of, right? Vacuum fluctuations. I haven't heard a lot about it. I mean, and well, certainly anything quantum I don't understand. Well, vacuum fluctuations, they're not that difficult to understand, but there's something, it's an observed phenomenon that in, in particle physics, you can look at this stuff in cloud chambers and that kind of thing where there's nothing happening. It's a perfect vacuum as far as you know. But all of a sudden an electron and a positron and a proton appear out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And they exist for a tiny fraction, fraction of a second, I mean on the order of Planck's constant, and then they come back together and annihilate each other and everything's back to, you know, this kind of quantum foam, this sea of potentiality. Mm -hmm. And usually these quantum fluctuations that we can study in the lab are, you know, a few particles, a few dozen particles. But there is no upper limit, there's no theoretical limit on the size of a vacuum fluctuation. Mm -hmm. And a vacuum fluctuation could be as big as the universe. And that's kind of the current idea. That's essentially how things came into being, that there's just this quantum foam of, you know, particles appearing and disappearing, and, and somehow, for some reason, a bubble forms, and this one, you know, doesn't disappear in a microsecond. It, it, it lasts trillions of years. Right. Or it's all relative, right? I mean, it could be... A microsecond compared to another. Yeah, absolutely. Sense of yeah, absolutely. And this is going on all over this sort of quantum ground of being, this, this foamy substrate. And so there are multiple universes, you know, and uh, some are very short-lived and some are medium-lived and some are quite long-lived, mm -hmm. you know, and it is all relative. And that's much more hopeful than the, the heat death model. Well, absolutely, it's hopeful, and 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 it's hopeful, and 
yeah, I don't like the idea of the heat death. I mean, that's that's pretty depressing. It's all just gonna, but. Uh, it, it is more hopeful because within some of these bubbles, some of these quantum fluctuations that have a long lifespan, it's long enough for life to evolve, intelligence to evolve. And once you've got that, and once you've got intelligence with an ability to manipulate the environment, then all bets are off, you know, as to the fate of that particular system. But chances mm -hmm. are life and intelligence because it wants to persist will get busy and figure out a way to to uh, escape from this this constraint that all everything must return to entropy hmm. so and that and that and you seem to be the only guy getting grant money towards this well I'm not getting yeah. any grant money no. for this I sure <laughs> I mean huh? uh, <laughs> No, I'm not getting any grant money for this. I mean, this I is mean, just... You've got grant money to go down and, and study what the shaman have to say. Uh, um, yeah, but, yeah, but the, uh, I mean, I do, but the grants come because we don't talk about any Exactly. <laughs> we don't talk about the wider implications. You have to focus your... You have right. to focus your science, uh, you know, very specifically on something, and you can't let people know that, you know, you're really a wild-eyed screwball. You know, right. you have to play the role of, well, you know, I'm a serious scientist. I'm a reductionist. I'm just, I just want to look at, you know, the chemicals in plants and see how they work, you know, mm -hmm. in biological systems. But you, you can't, no, you, you can't get grant money for this kind of thing. I mean, you could get a fast ticket to an insane asylum if you talk about it to <laughs> the wrong people. <laughs> you know, you have to be very careful. But we all, I mean, and we all, you know, we all have these intuitions. There's nothing that's unique to me about this. I mean, I think anyone, any thoughtful person has got to be, you know, for in some ways astonished, you know, that we're even here. I mean, the whole shooting match is so bloody unlikely, given mm -hmm. that, you know, the universe is entropic in most mm -hmm. of its parts that we know. The fact that we're here is a marvelous thing on the order of a miracle. Mm -hmm. Thank thank Gaia, thank God, thank mm -hmm. whoever you want to thank that we are here. And uh you know, the whole, when you really think about how unlikely this is, uh, given what we know about the way things are organized, I mean, some incredibly unique event took place here. And, uh, and hopefully it's not unique. Hopefully it's the, it's the norm. I mean, right. this is a big question. How prevalent is life in the universe? And, I mean, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that if you have complex life forms, sooner or later you're going to have intelligence. It's, it's this property, it's this emergent property notion, you know. If you have a, a, an environment that's prebiotic before life, but if the chemistry is complex enough, you've got complex chemical systems, a lot of these organic compounds, including amino acids and nucleotides and all the building blocks of life can 
spontaneously form in abiotic or prebiotic systems. I mean, this has all been worked out years ago, you know, simulate the the atmosphere of primitive earth and shoot lightning bolts through it or mm-hmm. whatever and uh, you know amino acids will right. rain down out of that medium so and this is a property of matter this is just what carbon chemistry does but at a certain point the complexity will go over from you know organic chemistry to biochemistry as these systems begin to surround themselves with membranes, for example, and sequester certain molecules in certain compartments and then they're closer together and they can interact and you get enzymatic uh, systems going on. Enzymes are usually simply a way of accelerating a chemical reaction that would take place over time anyway, but but slowly, you know, and not fast enough to really have much consequence. So you, you know, you get uh, out of complex organic chemistry, you get primitive life emerging as an emergent property at a certain level of organization, and then you have more complex multicellular systems emerging, and then they become complex enough that you can get compartmentalization you know, specialization into organ systems, you know, multicellularity in a sense. And so you can get specialized uh, systems that, you know, are adapted to particular functions. And, of course, for us, the, the most fascinating one is the neural systems, you know, these evolved systems of chemical communication. And I... Knowing what we know about the way that matter works and chemistry works and so on, we can be reasonably sure that, you know, other places in the universe, other places in the galaxy that simulate the environment that uh, was on the primitive Earth, those systems will also evolve life. It's just an inevitability. It's a property mm-hmm. of matter. So that's reassuring because, you know, when there it takes enough, a lot of the pressure off. It takes a lot of the pressure. Yeah, it's not only up to us. It's not only up to us. Uh, you know, life probably permeates the universe, and that means intelligence permeates the universe. You know, and that's good. That's so, you know, if we blow it and looks like we're probably going to, (laughs) but others will carry on, you know. And if we wake up in time, maybe we can be part of that. I mean, that seems to be our, our challenge is to, you know, propagate these understandings through enough people that people do wake up and they realize we've got to get cracking. You know. and, and what are the methods that that people do that you you see as, as ways that people could uh, open their eyes or, or wake up to these larger issues? Well, I think I think that's where these the psychedelic plants come in to to play a big role. I mean, I think that these intelligent plants, the, the plant teachers, if you will the ones that the shamans have had this symbiotic relationship with for millennia, you know, uh, since long before history began, they're part of that 
that message. I mean, they're trying desperately. It's almost like they're emissaries from the rest of the biosphere who have come forward, who have always been there and have always been recognized by some, but now they're exploding on a global scale, you know, with the Internet, with the widespread interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, ayahuasca is now a global phenomenon, you know, and this is part of, you know, the plants reaching out, trying to reach out to larger groups of people and basically you know, hit us upside the head with a two-by-four and say, hey, you monkeys, you know, wake up. You're fucking it up. You know, you have to wake up. And I think that's what they do. So I, I think that that's a big part of why we're in some ways returning to, you know, I mean, we never really left it, but this archaic fascination with these plant teachers is certainly a whole lot more out there than it was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think because people are making these discoveries, and then, but, you know, people being people, there's all sorts of things you can do with that knowledge. Um, and, and people being people, some of it's not necessarily good. You know, people have, you know, people receive the message and then the next thing you know, you know, they're the Messiah. They have to Mm -hmm. save the world. It it falls on their shoulders to be the one and they're going to lead humanity into this post-historical age. And what's lost there, uh, a lot of what's lost there is humility. And I think humility is essential for doing this. I mean, this is the other thing that to me personally, and I think to a lot of people, I think this is the message of the plant teachers. Not only, you know, you monkeys need to wake up, but you monkeys need to get over yourselves. You know, you monkeys only think you're running the show. You're not running the show. If anything, the plants are running the show, you know, and, and, and this we know because plants are the you know through photosynthesis they're the basis of life on earth they're the mechanism that life has evolved to grab solar energy out of the cosmos and use it you know convert it into chemical energy and use it to run this biosphere much in the same way that uh, we use nutrients or food to run our little ecosystem this biochemical engine that we are. And that's really what the biosphere is. I mean, you can think of it as a cell as much as anything. Um, so I think I think that the, the plant teachers are important in helping people to make these discoveries. And then the natural impulse is to propagate that message, you know, to spread the good news or to spread the news in a sense. But it's also, we tend to think that we're important, individuals are important, so there's a real tendency to, on our part, to place yourself right in the center of that and say, it's all about me, you know, it's I'm I'm the messiah, I'm the person who's going to propagate the message. And... It's not a uh, it's not an unhealthy impulse to want to let people know, but there's a temptation to say, well, you know, I'm going to found a religion, or I'm going to mm-hmm. found a cult, or I'm going to, you know, 
and then the sort of the the purpose of the whole thing gets lost the purpose being to wake people up but suddenly or not suddenly but over time that purpose becomes obscured and the purpose becomes to perpetuate the institution mm-hmm. you know or the individual or the structure of the thing and so the central mystery which may have come from a plant teacher or other sort of one-on-one direct revelation reception of a message from the cosmos or a, a learning, a teaching from the cosmos, becomes obscured. And I was like, you know, because real mysteries are inherently threatening to institutions. And, you know, even if they had their origin in the in a revelation the institutions become rigidified and it's like oh my god we've got to suppress this only the priests get to know that this all came from you know eating mushrooms or whatever it came mm-hmm. from you know we can't tell the rabble this because then they won't obey us they won't look up to us you know so that's that's also you know sort of my shtick when i talk about this stuff is you know, don't follow, you know, mm-hmm. or, or preserve your, your inherent right to think for yourself and question everything, you know. Um, religions talk a lot about faith, um, and I guess we all have faith in a certain, in certain sense. Like, I have, I have faith that life is common in the universe, mm-hmm. and uh, there's evidence for that belief in what we were talking about—the nature of physics and chemistry and all that. I have no hard evidence that there's life anywhere else in the universe, but I take it on faith with a certain amount of evidence that there probably is. There's likely to be. Um, religions, established religions, tend to want you to. Uh, take a lot of things on faith for which there is not a shred of evidence Mm -hmm. you know and so the the doctrines and the dogmas become essentially they're political institutions they become instruments for keeping people in line don't ask too many questions just accept it you know because we're smarter than you and we're running things so you must have faith my son right you know why in hell should I have faith? <laughs> Give me a reason. I prefer evidence, you know. And I mean, even just a little evidence would would help. So I think that's one of the dangers of uh, you know getting these revelations, and it just seems part of the the natural evolution of these things that that's how people react. You know, uh, with psychedelics, it's almost a side effect. <laughs> of psychedelics. One of the maybe adverse side effects of psychedelics is it'll make you think that, you know, you're the messiah or mm-hmm. you have to somehow play a role in this. And I I don't think so in a way. I mean I think ayahuasca you've got to look at it from an evolutionary perspective. And what's playing out here is plant human coevolution. It's been going on for tens of thousands of years and possibly longer than that. Now it seems to have gone to a new stage. But I think ayahuasca is perfectly capable of finding 
the people it needs and the people that need to find ayahuasca will find it and the, there's no need for for uh, cults or movements or very much human intervention although a lot of people will be convinced that we must do this you're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time Well, now you know why Terence was always so generous in his praise of his brother Dennis. Together, they made quite a team, and now it's up to Dennis to continue not only the scientific research work that the two brothers began so long ago at La Chirera, but uh, as you know, Dennis is uh, also right now working on writing the definitive biography of his famous brother and uh, their many exciting adventures together. Now, I've talked about this project in recent podcasts, but uh, as of now, with only uh, 20 days to go and only 585 backers for uh, Dennis's Kickstarter project, I want to mention it one more time in the hopes that uh, he'll get enough pledges of support so that he can proceed with this important project. And uh, for what it's worth, I've uh, pledged part of the donations that we've been receiving here in the salon this year towards the project. So uh, thank you again to all of the saloners out there who have made contributions uh, not only to the salon, but to Dennis's projects, uh, to the Shulgans, and to all of the other worthwhile causes that uh, seem to be calling for our help these days. And another way we can help uh, all help one another, I think, is to uh, support each other's projects in ways that don't involve money. And I'm talking, of course, about spreading the word about uh, what other people are doing. For example, uh, today I'd personally uh, like to thank uh, Dennis McKenna, David Allenbogen, and uh, WKCR 89.9 FM Radio in New York City for providing the informative interview that we just heard. And I also want to mention that David has also begun podcasting. And his program can be found online and in iTunes if you go to NYC Radio Live. Uh, that's online at nycradiolive.org. Uh, or search in the iTunes store for NYC Space Radio Space Live. Not all one word there. And uh, while I've had a long-standing self-imposed rule to only plug podcasts uh, after they've had, oh, say, ten or more programs... But after listening to David here in the salon and uh, after listening to his first podcast, I think that this program uh, is one that's going to be around for quite a while. So if you're interested in jazz and world music, uh, maybe you want to check it out. Not only will you hear some new music, but you'll also be treated to in-depth interviews with the musicians that are being featured. Uh, I really enjoyed that first podcast, David, uh, so thanks again for all you're doing to make this world a nicer place. And uh, I should also mention that on David's website, you can hear some of his own music, which uh, I find quite enjoyable and uh, will probably be featuring uh, in some future podcast. Well, that's going to have to do it for today, and so I'll close again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear a little bit about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can uh, download at genesisgeneration.us. 
And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>